Do you hear that sound? That is the sound of the waves crashing against a bay. But not just any bay. It's a Baywatch. Because this is a Baywatch podcast. In fact, this is Baywatch Rookie School. A podcast for two men who have never watched Baywatch before. Try and watch Baywatch. I'm Michael Eisen. And I'm Morgan Thrapp. And we don't know how to lead into a podcast, so here we go. Morgan. Sure do not. It is episode two, but really it is season one, episode one. It is. Are we ready for this? As ready as we're going to be. Uh, I'm not sure how to qualify or quantify that, but <laughs> I guess we kind of have to. Um, exactly. So this episode, now. this episode is called In Deep. It's kind of a shitty title for this episode, um, but I mean, uh, what are they going to do? Um, so this episode aired September 22nd, 1989. It was directed by Peter Hunt, written by Michael Burke and Douglas Schwartz, the writing team that uh, Gregory Bannon or whatever heck his name was, uh, got to to write the pilot. Um, also of note is that we were watching the original broadcast version, or at least I was, and the season one theme song is Save Me by Peter Cetera. But in all the reruns, they replaced uh, the opening song with Overboard by Kim Carnes. Uh, oh, man, really? Because this opening song is great. I mean, it's terrible, but it is great. It's, it's yes. <laughs> I... Th- I know that I've seen it and heard it before, but like somehow blocked it out from my mind. Like it just, I, I saw it, I saw the words Baywatch come across it. And the first thing I thought was this looks exactly like the cover of the sugar album, copper blue. But the second thing I thought was, I know I've seen this. I just at some point in my life and this music, um, it's just the most Baywatch thing I could think of. Yeah, I will definitely agree with you there. And it also establishes some classic things like action shots, uh, people slow-mo running, people looking really heroic while just being lifeguards, which, you know, not that heroic. Sorry, lifeguard community. (laughs) But it got me pretty pumped. Yeah, it starts off on a high note and then gets a lot more exciting and then gets weirdly depressed and becomes a morality play for a little while. Well, I think that's our perfect lead-in. Morgan, <laughs> take us into the episode. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we, we have our classic intro here. It's it's the same horny montage of feet that it was last episode. Mm. Lots of beach shots, just, mm. you know, standard stuff. Um, we smash cut to Mitch's bachelor pad, which is the cartoon embodiment of a single dad bachelor pad there are clothes everywhere it's more homely than i was expecting honestly like because i imagine it to look like whatever the image that comes to mind for the words love shack is (laughs) yeah yeah now that you mention it i think something a little bit more like that might have been more fitting right you know it is what it is but yeah he tells hobie that this place is disgusting and they need to clean up. And Hobie says, why? There are no girls here. And Mitch says, yeah, that's the problem. Continuing the theme of this show being extremely horny. I think, so I actually wrote down the line, which was, Mitch says, this place is a pigsty. And Hobie says, hey, we're young, we're single, and we're men. We're supposed to be slob. <laughs> um, and apparently Mitch had said this to his ex-wife, Gail, when they were first started dating. Shocked that they divorced. Uh, such right. a shock. And then 
as you said, Hobie objects because there are no girls around. Little Easter egg. I don't know if you noticed. Al's painting is in Mitch's house. Oh, no shit. Unfinished. I did not notice. It's unfinished. Mitch never went back and painted the little like circles because I guess just tandem tag team painting ain't as fun as painting a picture by yourself. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's nice. Like Al is a close friend and it's cool that he he like kept some bit of memorabilia. It is. But I can make I can ruin this for you. Oh, and no. that is that the actor who played Al comes back in like season seven as a completely different character. Wow. Not like amnesia or anything. At least I don't think he just they just recast the actor as someone else. <laughs> <laughs> amnesia would be a pretty wild storyline, considering we have a full on funeral for Al. Oh, I mean, maybe he drowned. Uh, OK, so this episode kind of gives us the insight that you could drown and come back days later possibly so maybe mm-hmm. he drowned washed up on a different shore a different beach under a different lifeguard team and then assumed a new lifeguard lifestyle could be except that the body that comes back in this episode is definitely not still alive right that's a minor but, problem but that's because this show hates women well that is true <laughs> but so to to get into this whole murder plot Hobie says he's going to summer school and instead cuts class to go down to the beach and play around on some jet skis with two random older teens that we have never seen before. Mm-hmm. We also learn in this episode that Hobie is 12, which is weird because I could have sworn in the pilot they say he's 13, but whatever. <laughs> they were too focused on being horny to pay attention to things like plot details and consistency. So Hobie and the two teens are jet skiing around, just generally having fun in the sun, on the water. Good times. When they go shooting past a pier and upset a bunch of old fishermen who yell at them that they're scaring away all the fish. Uh, I also wrote down this line uh, because my video had subtitles, so it was perfect. Fisherman number two says, hey, dumbbell kid, (laughs) you're scaring away the fish. I've never heard dumbbell kid as an insult, but I'm going to start using it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, And what happens is that the kids and the teens respond uh, by just continuing the drive, you know, or ski around. But uh, one of the teenagers calls Hobie Hobster, uh, (laughs) which is the worst nickname I've ever heard. Yeah, I have written down in my notes, the older teen keeps calling him Hobster. It's such a dumb nickname. I mean, Hobie is already a dumb name. But Hobster, Hobster sounds like a cruel prank. Yeah, it definitely makes you question why he's friends with these two older kids. I mean, it's because he gets to hang out on a jet ski, which like fair. As a 12 year old, I also would have been friends with some douchey older teens if I could have hung out on a jet ski. When I was a little, little kid, I hung out with some douchey older teens. Uh, It wasn't to hang out on a jet ski. It was so that they could watch me climb a tree that had a beehive on it. So I don't really know what I got (laughs) out of it. Like... I think it was just like, hey, like me. But I think I I sort of did the same thing as Hobie here. Speaking of being bullied and pressured into things by older teens, Mm -hmm. the older teens try and convince Hobie to shoot the pier, which is drive your jet ski under the pier and avoid all the supporting beams. The older teen does it first, and it is cut really weirdly. That shot is very odd. It feels like they're not actually moving. Like they keep showing shots of the team driving under the pier and then they cut to what's supposed to be like a POV shot, but it looks like he's the same distance from the beach every single time. (laughs) 
I think they may have reused footage. I think they absolutely did because they didn't hire a stunt actor. That's what I'm guessing happened. That would make sense. Um, But so, yeah, he shoots the pier successfully. And then Hobie goes to do the same and falls off. And it doesn't seem to matter. Like, no one really cares. The teens are kind of just like, oh, you fell off. Okay, get back on your ski. Let's go back to the beach. And then he has like a small cut on his knee and that's it. And then he he he's all happy and, and such. He's like, he doesn't actually say like, thanks, guys. But he says, thanks, guys, for, for taking me out power skiing. And he cleans up his power ski. And the two teens say something about how they're going to like make him their slave for the summer. Yeah, I remember that. That was so super weird like i i think it's so that they can get their skis cleaned but it's never really made make like he's not shown cleaning their skis so i don't know what they're gonna get out of him other than like a cool little preteen friend yeah it didn't really make sense to me but they're not written especially well throughout the rest of the episode so i'm no. not especially surprised no so around this point is also when we find out because uh, they make a cut back to the I guess we're going to call it the office, Baywatch Central HQ. I don't know what it is. Uh, Craig gets a call at lifeguard work for lawyer work, mm-hmm. which seems exceptionally unprofessional. Uh, just like in the pilot, I feel like Craig doesn't actually take his lawyer work very seriously. Uh <laughs> I feel like he'd rather be a lifeguard 100% of the time than a lawyer. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. And we also get some foreshadowing that Eddie is homeless, maybe, because all of his things are in his locker. But the whole scene is like 30 seconds and doesn't really go anywhere. And it, it's very odd. It It's they clearly haven't yet mastered pacing in this yes. show. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming they will master pacing because they lasted 11 seasons. Here's hoping. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's just a fluke. Uh, maybe they forgot that it was on TV and they just kept on renewing it. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but I'm betting that they actually master pacing. I would hope so. So the next uh, we get something where I was so happy to talk about this because I knew you'd love it, where Mitch again uses the word crab stompers. Yes, I wrote it down. (laughs) I was so excited. I was so excited. So Mitch tells this guy who we were just now seeing for the first time, who who's uh, he says he's a cop, not a lifeguard. And actually has to run guys down on the beach. So he's going to wear shoes instead of anything else. And Mitch lambasts him for for wearing crab stompers and says, get some thongs instead. Uh, mm-hmm. Which would not make sense for a police officer. Why not just, I don't know, wear no shoes? Yeah, I do not understand. I, I don't know how you would run someone down with thongs. Even running people down with, like, crab stompers uh, doesn't seem that efficient. Uh, also, why are you running people down on the beach? There's like a dude with a gun and you're like running him. Like, just to, I, how often does this happen that you are running down the beach and not right. the lifeguards? That was my question as well. A, he's got an ATV, which right. is objectively faster than running. <laughs> yes. And B, why? Right. Like, also, what are you doing at the beach? Also, like, okay, so one, he says he would got placed there at the beach. What do you mean he got placed at the beach? It sounds like he did something wrong, and they were like, you know what? We're going to put you where it's sunny. Uh, and he's like, dang, I hate it. And then secondly, it also sounds like 
there's some weird dichotomy between police and lifeguards, even though the lifeguards in the pilot clearly had almost more power than the entire police department. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that about him getting placed there because there's a weird illusion to him having done something wrong. And that's why he's at the beach and he like sort of resents it but doesn't really, and it doesn't make any sense. Right, because he, ha- he has his own office. He gets to head up like a homicide. I don't see how there's any loss here other than the fact that he hates, like, the way lifeguards talk. Like, that's the yeah. only thing. Like, I yeah. don't get how this is at all a punishment. I have no idea. But anyways, next, Hobie comes in. He's trying to get some money. He's trying to to clean up some stuff. And he says to Mitch that, Dad, inflation pays no favorites. <laughs> uh, which either is me mistyping plays no favorites or Hobie's an idiot 12-year-old. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm not sure which it is. And this doesn't really go down that well because it only gets three bucks. Yeah, he gets three bucks from Mitch and yells at him about how that's not enough and is carrying around this poster the entire time. And then they talk a little bit about how mad Hobie is that he has to do chores now and how Mitch is no fun anymore. So Mitch takes a look at the poster and it's a poster of a girl on a jet ski. Power ski. Please, it's a power ski. It is a power ski in this case, but they do use both jet ski and power ski interchangeably throughout this episode at different points. I think in this episode, when they want to hate on it, it's called a power ski. But when they want to love it, it's called a jet ski. Yeah, there is a weird amount of the anti-power ski propaganda in this that actually makes me want to go rent a jet ski. I got a power ski, a power ski. (laughs) (laughs) Please, you have to be tone appropriate here. The context is very necessary. I mean, it kind of does, too, for me. Um, But at the same time, I've learned my lesson from this episode. Power skis kill. More into that later. But uh, Mitch lists things that he and Hobie are fans of to (laughs) prove that he's fun. Like uh, like the Dodgers, I think. Uh, He's like uh, basketball. He keeps going on these runs of like five or six things and says, you like those, right? And Hobie says, yeah. Mitch goes, well, I like them too. Basketball, Rangers, the Dodgers, <laughs> hockey. You like those, right? Yeah, I like those too. And okay. Hobie responds by saying, okay, but if you're so fun, why won't you let me try power skis? Um, yeah. And then he runs away the moment Mitch tries to be a good dad. But specifically, Mitch doesn't want to let Hobie get on a power ski, not because they're dangerous, but because they're unregulated and don't require a license. Which I don't hate that. (laughs) I mean, sure, but it kind of feels like the easier argument here is they're dangerous and you're 12. Well, look, he's he's not the best dad. He's just a good dad. What happens next is that Hobie and Craig get together to complain about the fact that Hobie has to do chores. And then Craig says that Hobie should tell Mitch how he feels and that Mitch used to be just the same as Hobie. Uh, Right before this. I w- more specifics about that conversation is that Hobie complains to Craig that the last for the last two nights what they did for fun was algebra and laundry, but yes. specifically that the laundry night they had to match up socks which were all <laughs> white, which does seem excessive. Yeah, uh, unless they're like different patterned white socks, 
that would make sense. But otherwise, how do you recognize the white socks? Uh, do they have specific stains on them? Like, I don't know how that works. <laughs> right, that's some American Psycho shit right there. Talking about the different shades of white sock that Mitch has. Is this an American Psycho podcast now? It could be. It absolutely could be. But yeah, so he says it's like living with... Hobie's complaints, it's like living with a vice principal. And Craig says, it's like living with your dad. Which I was like... Wow, three writers came up with that line. And it's like yep. a it's like a good line, but also it's not it's like barf gag corny. It stands out as the most written thing in this episode, I would say. In an episode that just feels very low effort on the part of the writers, this one feels like they all got together and came up with this particular exchange and then said, "Ah, eh, fuck it, we'll just go to the beach for the rest of this episode and not care." I like to think that the that the crack team who came up with that line is the same team who sits in that cabin and writes that Rihanna album like every, you know, few years. Uh, <laughs> they're just like, look, like we made California king bed. We can do it's like living with your dad. <laughs> so next we cut to the beach, right? Yeah, next we've got Trevor just continuing to be a dick on a power ski. He's the best. I do like him a little bit more after this episode, I gotta say, even though he is still a dick. But he's doing these fancy tricks on his power ski where he goes up a wave and then lands down on the back end of the power ski and keeps doing it over and over again. And then Jill yells at him that he can't be showing off on a jet ski in the water because jet skis are illegal. And he's a lifeguard, or at least he should be. And then he says that his club doesn't care what he does in the water as long as he's watching the water, which kind of doesn't really make sense. Like, I'm not really sure how he's supposed to be lifeguarding when he's out on a power ski. Although, I guess in his defense, there are a whole bunch of women on the beach just watching him. Right. So I guess at least he's keeping them out of the water and that's safer or something. I guess so. He explains that the beach club he works for monitors a small part of the beach. And Jill responds that the water is the jurisdiction of the county. And the county says there's no power skis within the surf line. Uh, and the county also says you can't launch your power skis from the beach. But this has not stopped Trevor Cole from launching his power ski from the beach on the small area inside the surf line yeah. <laughs> uh which shows you that he is a bad boy rebel oh you know who's it. willing to do anything to get a lady's number uh mm -hmm. so he tries to flirt with jill who is just not into it despite having been very into it in the pilot movie yeah i think she once she realized what his personality was she's just done which is fair but she no longer wants that signed cereal box from him <laughs> i i kind of want that signed cereal box from him a little bit next we oh actually this is the place in my notes where i have in parentheses and again this was the first time i had watched this episode Someone is totally going to die from a power ski this episode. Oh, I mean, you kind of already know. It's really obvious. Oh, yeah. It's like you can't just like condemn power skis in the same way that like, I don't know, Trump is condemning TikTok without like something drastic happening. Getting real topical with our podcast about a TV show from 1989. <laughs> Look, <laughs> here's the thing you don't understand, Morgan, is that everything that has happened has already happened. History is doomed mm. to repeat itself. Um, yes. But really, history is doomed to repeat itself specifically 
uh, via what has been aired on NBC uh, between <laughs> 1989 and 2001 on Baywatch. Every story in every story ever written is based off of Baywatch. Shakespeare mm-hmm. based everything off of Baywatch. Really, what is Baywatch if not The Tempest? Absolutely. Because of the nautical theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is, you know, Baywatch, if not for... Uh, it, it's really just a, a Lord Byron poem. Uh, I mean, Baywatch speaks to every sect of literature possible. Um, and it does it by providing a unique story that allows for you to empathize with these characters and truly understand what it means uh, <laughs> to have hip slips and fingertips. <laughs> exactly exactly next up is some more flirting but this time between shawnee and eddie shawnee tells eddie that she called the number that he gave her and it turns out it was a pizza place and asks him why he gave her the number for a pizza place and he makes some excuse about how The owner of the pizza place was the only place that would let him use their phone number until his phone got fixed, (laughs) which I mean, okay, sure. Sure. Why not? I guess in terms of excuses to tell a cute girl about why you are, I guess, homeless and don't have a phone number like that one's not terrible, but Shawnee takes it surprisingly well. And Eddie asks why she was planning on calling anyway. And she says to see if you wanted to get a pizza. And then the scene ends, which I love that. That was really cute. It's very good. This is the part where I have two Baywatch facts for you. The first is that I discovered that Eddie is actually based off of a real-life lifeguard. Uh, Really? His name is Mitch Flyer. Mitch Flyer appears in this episode as Lifeguard Steve. I don't know who it is, but he's just there. The second fact is that the actress who plays Shawnee... uh, uh, I think it's Arena Aleniak, um, who we discussed again last episode, uh, was not too big with the NBC Top Brass because she filmed uh, or she posed for Playboy a few months prior um, while she was 19 years old and she's 20 here. She was engaged to Billy Warlock, who plays Eddie. At the time? No, 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 no. Like later, as they got went through oh, okay. uh, Baywatch, uh, they they never got married. They broke up, but they were engaged. Uh, this was uh, Arena Leniak's biggest role by far. She she had like another role where well, she had a few other roles. She was in ET. Uh, she played this like bit character who uh, the main character kisses, and he's like, "Ew, girls." Um, and she was like, "Whatever, pay me." Um, and then she was in, like, Beverly Hillbillies. And oh. then she was in some, like, B-rate movies. And mostly she just, you know, kind of coasted on the fact that she was really hot. Uh, she posed for I mean, Playboy. Fair. Yeah, fair. Uh, posed for Playboy um, and could get those roles. And then kind of resurfaced randomly on uh, Celebrity Fit Club. Do you know what Celebrity Fit Club is? I have never heard of this before in my life. Okay, so this is another, I'm going to explain a reality show to Morgan segment, <laughs> um, which hasn't been featured yet on this show, but it's very featured in our friendship. Absolutely. Uh, which is, uh, so they would get a bunch of these like D-list to maybe B-list celebrities. Um, you get people like Dustin Diamond on, 
or you get like Arena Leniak, and they would be overweight at the time and they'd want to lose weight. So they get like wow. a like a celebrity trainer. And I can't remember the name of her, but she's she's all right. She's like an all right, cool person. But then they would judge them on like their weight loss and they would be like, well, you didn't meet the weight. So here's a punishment. Uh, and it kind of creates an endless cycle of they come on the show to have better opinions of themselves, uh, putting themselves on TV again at their like most vulnerable to have someone make fun of them uh, for not putting in enough effort or losing weight which is losing weight is hard so then like whoever wins at the end i guess like gets money for charity and the show was part was like the most famous season of the show was the one with dustin diamond because he was a dick to everybody and he got into a fight like he tried to punch one of the judges who is an ex like army drill you know instructor um and then dustin diamond just started like crotch chopping as he like <laughs> ran away it's he's such a fucking dick fuck wow. dustin diamond this podcast is anti dustin diamond as cool as his name is as much as i like saved by the bell we're an anti dustin diamond podcast and a pro arena leniac podcast and i guess pro billy warlock but to get back to the point i thought the scene was very cute I thought yeah. the line to see if you wanted to grab a pizza was actually a really well-written line. No, I agree. I think this was some of the most natural and real acting we've seen on this show so far. And it was really surprising considering a, that it was those two characters and B that it was just this show at all. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know we we're going to drag this show, but we're going to come back to this in like, 10 years when we're actually done with this podcast and be like, why did we hate on this? This show is great. Oh yeah. Oh, I look forward to it. <laughs> so what happens next? What happens next is we cut to the two older teens from earlier who were teaching Hobie how to drive a power ski, jet ski, whatever you want to call it. And now they're just circling this sailboard with some random woman on it that we've never seen before. Right. And just driving in circles around here, her while she yells at them to stop. And it doesn't really seem to have a point. Like, I don't get why they're doing it other than for the purposes of the plot. I think well, I mean, one of them is drinking and I think he's trying to show off. And it seems like. At one point, the other one is chasing him in the circle to tell him to stop, which just makes it worse. Like, I don't, I don't get what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. But one of them, who we later learn is Scott. We never learn the other kid's name. We do. We do? It's Ron. Oh, I totally missed that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to tell which one is Scott and which one is Ron. Yes. Scott has the really cool board shorts the entire episode that are this awesome like vapor wavy purple and orange and i kind of want them i mean i just kind of want the fashion from this show right it's actually very good okay so this is the part where if for some reason we ever get a sponsor we need to get a sponsor that puts out vaporwave like yes kind of stuff specifically maybe like uh like that website like weird shirts whatever which has yeah. just like all the like weird vaporwave shirts or the shirt that just says like haha please kill me um that's that's the place i want to sponsor this episode absolutely weirdshirts.com or whatever your website is come sponsor us it's weirdshirts.cool weirdshirts.cool <laughs> yeah because they're so cool <laughs> but you know what's not cool 
murdering someone, which is what happens <laughs> next. <laughs> it was too perfect. I couldn't not take that segue. But Scott, Scott sorry, runs into sorry. the girl on the sailboard. No, it's good. <laughs> Please keep that in. Oh my god. Okay, yeah, continue. Scott runs into the girl on the surfboard, or on the sailboard rather. And she goes underwater, and so does he. And then Ron jumps off his jet ski and immediately goes underwater to go search for both of them. They splash around in the water for a while, surface a couple of times and come back and then go, we can't find her anywhere. So Scott is like, we should just leave. And Ron says we should go get help. And then they both just leave, and it's not really clear which one they're planning on doing. But as it turns out later, they are planning on just straight up running away. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, so they say, I guess it's Ron says, again, I have trouble keep. I, I had to look into my notes. Apparently, Ron is the good one and Scott is the bad one. Yes. Uh, um, so Scott says, don't say anything. It'll be OK. We got to get out of here, which I don't know what they think that will compass. Like she might, she might have drowned and died. So like, how will this be okay? They end up cutting to a scene where uh, a search party comes by, and they see the the wind surfing thing. Uh, I don't know what you call it. It's called a sailboard. The sailboard, and they're like, okay, well, you know, call out the search party, and Ron and Scott see it. And they think that the search party is looking for them and not the dead woman yeah. <laughs> on, on this thing. So uh, they're kind of idiots. Yeah. They talk for a little bit about how they should just not tell anyone. And Ron tells Scott, like, no, we got to do it. And then Ron's like, no. Or Scott's like, no, we can't. And then Ron's like, how can you not care about this girl's life? And Scott's like, we have to just keep living our life. She's dead now. And it's just like real fucking nihilistic for a couple of 17 year olds. But, you know, so be it. I mean, look, maybe they've read the works of ancient, ancient. Well, I don't know why I called it ancient of French nihilistic philosophers. Maybe they're just really into nihilism. I don't know. Could be. Could be. But next we cut to the beach where we have Craig and Mitch with the cop from earlier who are looking at this sailboard that has washed up on the beach um, that has some red paint on it. And I initially thought that this was just a really bad blood effect, but it turns out that it is actually supposed to be red paint. And they're trying to figure out what happened. And then... Mitch and Craig both say, oh, yeah, some girl must have gotten hit by something like a speedboat. And the cop says, how do you know it's a girl? And Mitch says, oh, well, because the height of the boom was set to five, six or five, seven, which like fucking what? Excuse me. They, they say that they also say, they say like their rigging is set for a woman is fi- for for a woman in like the the, fi- the placement of like where the feet should be. And I'm like, this seems way too technical to just throw out there and then not explain. Yeah, it does not make sense. But then then we just leave. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very weird scene, but it does uh, give me a chance to tell you this great joke. I know, which is, hey, Morgan. Yes. (laughs) So what's red and smells like blue paint? What, Michael? Michael? 
and red paint. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that is a Neil Hamburger joke. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Speaking of hamburgers, next we cut to Eddie's Tower, where he is sitting sadly in what looks like an 80s music video. There's no hamburgers in this scene. What are you no, talking about? No, but there about? is a sandwich, and a hamburger are is basically okay. a sandwich. No, don't defile the hamburger. <laughs> the hamburger is way different from a sandwich. A sandwich is like, I would never eat I would I would never put a sandwich and a burger on the same sections of my menu because I am not a heathen. You have your burger section and you have your sandwich section. They are different things. Okay, what about a patty melt? A patty melt is a sandwich. But why isn't it a burger? Because they don't typically use the same bread they would use for a burger. Uh, yeah, I suppose, but... You would okay. never use, like, a sesame seed bun... On a patty melt. That would be a travesty. So if I make a burger at home and put it on sandwich bread, because that's all I've got, it's not a burger anymore? Right. Okay. It's a sandwich now. All right. Unless, unless you put the right set of condiments and toppings on it, and now it's just like a shitty burger. See, if you were just to take the two pieces of bread, you take the patty, put it on, and then put some ketchup and mustard. You made yourself a sandwich. But if you were to also, like, put some, I don't know, some mayonnaise and maybe some tomatoes, some pickles, some onions, some lettuce, you got yourself a shitty burger. And it's shitty because of the bread. I mean, I would agree with you there. But my argument here is just that what is a sandwich but a shitty burger? Uh, well, I mean, if you have, like, a chicken club sandwich, that's not a shitty burger. That's, like, sometimes better than a burger. That's true. But, but if you put bologna in there, no one's ever going to ask for, hey, can you give me that bologna burger? Like, that sounds like the most disgusting sentence ever. Bologna sandwich. Now that sounds right. I mean, you say that, but honestly, a slice of fried bologna on a burger sounds like it might be pretty tight. Oh, uh, I, uh, I don't think I can do that. I feel like putting a, a slice of fried bologna on a burger just is like saying, what if I threw it in the dumpster first and then took it out and <laughs> fed it to you? <laughs> anyway, speaking of eating out of dumpsters, uh, yes. Eddie is throwing a sandwich to some seagulls, which are shit birds, and I hate them. They, they are really just the sandwich of birds. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and while he's doing this, heroic music is playing because yep. he's such a great guy. Yes, and also it's lit, like I said, like an 80s music video. Like, the sun is directly in the camera lens. It is washing out everything. It's, like, low-key sepia-toned, and all the colors are blown out. I, I mean, look, I, I live for that aesthetic. Like, I, Oh, no, it's great. I love it. It's so smarmy, and I can't get enough of it. No, it's, it's amazing. My next note just reads... Mitch and Hobie are playing basketball dinner, which is a great sequence in which Hobie is carrying around a meatball, I think. I'm yes. not really clear what it is. It's like a patty or something. Yeah, it looks breaded. This is the part where you should have brought up hamburger. Yeah, that would have made more sense. But I already <laughs> used up my one good segue for this episode, so I can't have another one. Dang. <laughs> 
But yeah, Mitch is uh, playing defense, trying to block the pan while Hobie throws a meatball onto the stove from like two feet away, which I mean, okay, cool, whatever. Yeah, it was kind of cool, I guess. They start to sit down for dinner and Mitch tells Hobie that he knows that Hobie's been cutting class and Hobie is kind of upset about the fact that he's been getting inconsistent parenting between his mom and Mitch, which I mean, fair. Like, that's a totally oh, yeah. valid complaint for a 12 year old. This this episode shocked me in that I kind of liked almost almost all of the Mitch and Hobie scenes and every single one, except for the one where he's like, I like the Dodgers. You like the Dodgers. Um, <laughs> I have it saying that Mitch is being a good dad. Like yeah. in this scene, he's legitimately like a really good dad. He's cares for his son's continuing education. He's like, don't shit on your mom. Like she's, she's trying her hardest. And he's also trying to understand like what, Hobie's having to go through being a kid of divorce, which yeah. I will never understand. But uh, I I think it was just a really frank discussion. No, I agree. One of my notes later on in this scene is that I was surprised how uh, later in the scene. So we like the keep the two keep talking. Hobie goes up to his room. Mitch brings him dinner. Um, during this, the cop calls Mitch and tells. Mitch, that now the cop knows who owns the sailboard. I say the cop, by the way, because again, I do not think we ever learn his name in this episode. We do. We do. We do? I gotta be better about paying attention to names then. So, (laughs) well, they do say his name. They also, I also did some research, which is gonna be my catchphrase throughout this show, which is I did some (laughs) research. Um, They call him Officer Garner. His name is Officer Garner Ellerby. That's a great name. It's a fantastic name, but he does not look like a Garner Ellerby, um, nor does anybody on the planet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but he he says, I got some analysis off that stick thingy, and Mitch corrects him <laughs> and says, it's called the boom. And he goes, yeah, I get it. You can stop saying that. Specifically, he says, yeah, you can stop saying that. I knew that. I just didn't want to sound like a lifeguard. <laughs> because he is clearly has such a different role from the lifeguard. Like, I, don't, I, yeah. I don't know what he does. It does not make sense. Um, but we find out the woman is named, and I have it in, I, I have two different names here. At first I wrote Diana Gray, and then later they say it's Diane Gray, and I don't know which it is. Yeah, I don't remember either. I think they might say both at different parts points during this episode. I think so. Um, but we finish up the scene between Mitch and Hobie. The two of them are still talking. Hobie goes up to his room. Mitch brings him dinner. Hobie says how he noticed that Mitch isn't doing so great after the divorce. And it's, a, again, just a surprisingly heartfelt and wholesome conversation between Hobie and Mitch that was way more heartfelt and progressive than I was like expecting from this TV show, especially when Mitch at one point says that part of the reason they divorced was that it was unfair that Mitch was making Hobie's mom do all the enforcing of rules and that Mitch was allowed to just be the cool dad that Hobie liked. And I was like, wow, that's really insightful and deep for this show. Not just for this show. It's insightful for television in 1989 yeah like the only show i can think of now granted i i don't know if i watch a lot of shows that were from 1989 that are 
maybe of this vein or not like Doctor Who or I don't, you know whatever sure. uh, is is the Golden Girls, uh, which has a lot of really frank conversations like that mixed in with like humor and such. Uh, I don't want to compare this to the Golden Girls really though, because the Golden Girls is a much better show and one of the greatest shows ever made in history, like bar none. But like this was full of just amazing conversations. And I was shocked how they wrote Mitch from just like the surfer bruh in the last episode to like surfer bruh, but he's like a woke dad. Yeah. There's a surprising amount of character development between the pilot and this that I was very impressed by. I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah, absolutely. This scene's almost over. The last bit of it is Mitch asks Hobie where he's going when he cuts class. And Hobie says, after looking at the poster of the jet ski with the girl on it for a long time, that he's going down to the arcade to hang out with some friends. And don't worry, he doesn't need pocket change because he's just watching. And Mitch is like, that's kind of weird. What are you doing? And then Hobie says, oh, well, there's a girl. And Mitch goes, ah, now I get it. And tells him that it'll all be okay because Hobie is being honest now. Which, I mean, he's not. Uh, But, you know, it was, again, it was surprisingly sweet. It was surprisingly sweet. However, I have one major complaint with this scene. And that is that why the fuck is Hobie wearing shoes on his own bed? You know, I did not notice that, but I am now also wondering that. That is transcends 80s. That is the most early mid 90s thing possible. And I hate it. Who the (laughs) fuck wears shoes in their own room on their own bed? Just take off your goddamn shoes. It's got to be way more comfortable. Yeah, I do not understand. Whatever. Next, we cut to Craig, and he's driving along the beach and finds that Tower 19 is open and unlocked, so he goes to investigate after radioing control, which is, to spoil it, the quickest a bit of foreshadowing will ever pay off. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He goes into the tower and finds Eddie asleep in the tower and tells him, quote, you know it's against the rules to sleep in the tower, and kind of weird, which feels super judgy. Yes, it does. Craig's a dick. Yeah, like chill. And so Eddie says it's because he wants to get an early start, which Craig doesn't really believe and asks him if he's got problems with his landlord. Uh, Eddie says that rent is expensive in L.A. And Craig says, but you know what's not expensive? Breakfast. Let's go get pancakes and eggs, which like, okay, a breakfast can be expensive. And B, it's such a weird, weird shift. Oh, I no, I I don't think it's actually that weird. I get what he's doing. What he's doing is he's trying to invite him to breakfast to try and like get more information from him. Sure, it just felt like a weird tonal shift between like, what the hell are you doing, you weird, creepy dude sleeping in this tower? To you know what isn't expensive? Pancakes and eggs. Maybe it's, I I read that. I guess I read the scene differently where he wasn't like you weird, creepy dude. He was just like, I pity you. Uh, and cause he has to work the same tower as him maybe. And he's just like, I want to like lead this kid along, you know, the straight and narrow. I don't know. I, I, I guess I just didn't read it as him going like you're creepy as much. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's still a weird scene. It is a weird scene. It's also a little hard to tell sometimes how scenes are intended to be read in this show because the music is so wild. Yes. Like the music will often be totally inconsistent with the rest of the scene. 
but it's all great. It's great music. It's very, it's very eighties and nineties. I love, I love this soundtrack. Um, but they get interrupted before they can get to breakfast by seeing a body wash up in the water and, Craig goes into the water while Eddie radios bass and thus paying off 30 seconds ago when Craig radioed bass and they said to radio back if you need backup. Yes. And it's the sailboarding girl who died earlier. My my notes are say um, not before they see Diane Gray somehow still alive after three days. And then quick note afterwards. No, wait, never mind. She's dead. Yep. Um, the cop shows up and Mitch shows up. Um, the cop says, yep, it's the same girl from before based on the description he got of her, which seems weird, but okay, whatever. We're just going to roll with it. In yep. this universe, police are competent, I guess. Well, Officer Garner Ellerby is confident because with a name like that, you got to <laughs> be confident. Yeah. And competent. Confident and competent. Exactly. But Mitch says that the bruises on the girl can't be from a speedboat because otherwise there would be more bruises on her and that whatever caused these bruises had to be, quote, something quick that can turn on a dime like a power ski, man. Power skis. And then my notes just say this whole thing feels like a weird ad for power skis, which I stand by. I kind of want a power ski after this. It's it's either a power ski or like a weird like Nancy Reagan-esque attack on power skis. Or like ban all the power ski production right now, (laughs) Mr. Gorbachev. Yeah. And then then we have another very weird scene where Mitch asks why the two of them were there. And Eddie says that he was sleeping in the tower. And then Craig immediately jumps in and says, no, no, you were sweeping in the tower. And Mitch says, well, next time use a broom. And then the scene is over. It was so bad. Like, (laughs) so it was so stupid. Oh, my God. But the next scene is one of the greatest scenes. Really what happens is so Craig and Eddie take a walk through Venice Beach which I'm so glad they're going into Venice Beach and they get to see all these weird people. And there's a part where there's like a guy like skateboarding or like rollerblading on his, on his hands and his like leg, like hits Craig in the head. And Craig's just like, ha I love it here. Um, and then they play the most fucking <laughs> Mario brothers music I have ever heard yes. in my entire life. And I kid you not, I spent 30 minutes trying to find out what this song is yeah this is an original song that they made it's there i looked up basically every lyric site you could these lyrics suck so it's like i was like there's got to be a song somewhere that has these lyrics but no so then i went through a bunch of different websites that catalog um soundtracks of episodes none of them had it I went through uh, Spotify playlists that have songs from Baywatch. None of them had it. I went through the official uh, Baywatch uh, soundtrack. None of them had it. I also may have some way sourced um, some (laughs) of these like extra albums that they put out of like music from and none of them had it. So there is like no evidence of this song on the internet i went through reddit nothing i went through the baywatch wiki nothing i did so much research to try and find what this song is and i got nowhere 
And I am so disappointed because the beginning of this song fucking slaps. It's it sounds so good. It sounds like you're going through a warp pipe into Venice Beach. It's so good. Yeah. My note here says montage with three exclamation points and then with some majorly funky music. Yeah. I mean, funky is putting it light. I look, if anybody needs a reason to watch Baywatch, it's to watch this episode and then hear this fucking music because it's worth it. I might even just like probably like record some of this, put it on Instagram just because I can't get over how crazy this music is. But this scene is just a, a chance for them to montage them doing shit to fill time. Mm-hmm. The only part of this scene, other than the music, that is worth it at all is at the very end of the scene, Craig is being followed around by a mime. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that part is great. I love it. The mime keeps on like, like trying to imitate their conversation and such. Yeah. And clearly like they couldn't get him out of the shot, but we're like, go. Right. Yeah, it definitely feels like this guy was not part of the shoot, that he was actually just a random street mime on Venice Beach. And I want more of that. Yes. But they go to Craig's house now. Which looks very different from the pilot. Okay, so it's not just me. I thought it looked super different from the pilot. No, the pilot pilot looked like something I would expect from Florida in the 80s. And this looked like post-industrial reaction to like uh you know the fall of the berlin wall yeah it's this like weirdly brutalist thing with this giant metal staircase in the middle of it it's all gray yeah yeah it's it's very unfriendly yeah it's super weird and now we meet our new gina pomeroy holly Gagnier, Gagner, Gagnier. It's one of those. Yeah, I'm not sure. I I did not look up anyone's name. I pronounce it right. Probably one of those (laughs) times. Um, But yeah, we've got a we've got a whole new actor for Gina now. And she sits Craig and Eddie down at the table and makes them coffee and starts interrogating Eddie, who just sits there completely immobile, does not move his face, doesn't give us a single bit of reaction. But he is wearing a very cool denim vest and his sunglasses inside. Ah, the classic Billy Warlock charm. Oh, yeah. We learn that Gina has a friend who's a real estate agent, but if Eddie lets her find him an apartment, he might end up marrying her. So Craig says you should just use the newspaper. <laughs> they also say that, so this friend is named Cynthia. They say that uh, Cynthia will find him a place uh, because she's a pit bull when it comes to real estate, but also that she's exceptionally good at finding places for lifeguards, yes. which makes no sense. Like, yeah. who who focuses on the lifeguard real estate game? It does not make sense. It does not at all. But they hang out and drink like half a cup of coffee. Gina talks about how her first apartment in New York City was a closet. And then Eddie says, well, it's a shame you don't have a closet here. And Gina says, yes, we do. And Craig says, no, we do not. And then Gina shows Eddie to a storage room, which has a quote unquote beach view and talks about how expensive Manhattan real estate is, which is funny because A, it's still very expensive and B, even the prices they're talking about in 89 feel expensive. Like they're talking about it's 1200 for a 
like 300 square foot studio in Manhattan, which now, to be fair, would be like 2800. But it's still wild that even back then it was like, oh, that is still a lot of money. Craig says that when Mitch and him were young, they got a place. He calls it basically a closet. Mm hmm. Two blocks from the beach, which costs 50 bucks. Yeah. Which is crazy. Now, Gina also says that the storage closet that they are going to, in quotes, let Eddie rent in Japan would go for $5,000 a month. And I'm like. She just says 5,000. She does not specify a currency. uh, Oh, you did. Okay. That's fair. But usually you don't just, you know currency convert in the middle of a sentence off the top of your head um and why would eddie have the context for five thousand yen after you're like manhattan la malibu yeah japan yeah (laughs) you know the four pillars of united states yeah it does not make sense um i don't have historical exchange rates but i was curious um five thousand yen today is $47 US. So about the same. So like, no, 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 no. It can't be 5,000 yen. She's got to mean $5,000. Yeah, which I'm pretty sure is not true. But I also don't know much about the Japanese real estate market. Oh, well, Japanese real estate market (laughs) is so fucking expensive. It's more expensive than the Manhattan real estate market. So like, yeah, maybe it would go for 5,000 a month now, possibly. But in 1989... Hell no. Absolutely not. Um, But Eddie takes a look at the closet and can see that if he looks between two buildings and out the window, he can just barely see the beach. So he says, I'll take it over Craig's objection, who very rightly is like, hey, but what about like our privacy? Don't I get a decision in this? And Gina's like, nope, too bad. And so now Eddie has a room, which is good. Uh, I mean, I guess he has a room. We never really address it again. Yeah, no, this entire thing is just dropped. I assume we talk about it more in future episodes, but who knows? Who knows? Next is Jill going back to Trevor and asking him about the fact that they know that this girl got hit by a power ski. And can Trevor tell her everyone who has driven a red power ski near his beach, which... Which apparently is rare. Yeah, even though they repeatedly say in the episode that red is the most common color. Right. Well, but also power skis are unlicensed and unregulated. And so like they don't guess see too many power skis on the beach, except for Trevor's power ski also, which I mean, I don't guess I don't know which ones are a power ski and which ones are a jet ski or (laughs) they're the same thing. The show can get way too technical if it really wanted to be. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he continues to be a dick for a little bit and then finally says he'll get Gina some names. And that's the end of that. And well, she says he'll get her some names and then she kind of is like, oh, that's nice. And I'm like, don't you dare flirt with Trevor. Like, you're better than this, Jill. This also doesn't end up mattering at all. No, absolutely no point for Trevor to be included in this episode or really Jill for the most part. But she's at least in the episode later to build character. I guess we continue to iterate that Trevor is a dick. He's a cool dick. Yeah, that's true. He doesn't have frosted tips this time, though. He is a weird shirts dot cool without a weird shirt. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he does have frosted tips early. Like he's he's ahead of the curve. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, next up is the cop and Mitch are in Mitch's office and Hobie comes in and says that he got a B on an algebra pop quiz. Mitch says something like, wow, with how good you did, imagine how much better you could have done if you were actually at school. Which, like, wow, kind of a dick move to say to your son. I mean, he's not wrong, but also dick move. Sure. But also, like, Hobie seems like maybe not a kid for whom math is his strong suit. And he's proud of this accomplishment. And it is said in a very, like, joking, loving kind of way. But it did just still strike me as like, oh, okay, well, so much for Mitch being this amazing dad all the time. You know, sometimes I just had this great idea, which is I wonder if in the lifeguard community... They have their own versions of like Dr. Seuss books. Where instead of like <laughs> one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, they're like one ski, two ski, red power ski, white power ski. <laughs> Which white power ski is a very bad sentence yes. now that I think of yes. it. Yes. White jet ski. <laughs> We're going to go with white jet ski. <laughs> Um, the cop and Mitch tell Hobie about the power ski having killed the girl, and then they show Hobie a pic of the power ski that he was on at the start of the episode, and then Mitch says, well, you did so well in your test that we're going to eat something really bad for us for dinner, and then leaves. And it's very weird. They just leave Hobie there with all the evidence. Yeah, I guess everybody trusts Hobie, like, implicitly just trusts Hobie because he's the son of Mitch, but like, why? Yeah. Why would you do that? And of course, Hobie takes advantage of it and steals a picture. Yeah. He flips through a bunch of the pictures, steals one of them, and then gets on his bike and heads down to the pier where the power skis are stashed. He climbs under the pier and finds out that one of the parts on the red jet ski is broken just as Scott and Ron show up and just straight up confess that they murdered someone like it's such it's such bad writing. They're just like, yeah, can you believe we murdered that girl? Yeah, I'm still really sad about it. Well, you can't think about that anymore. We got to keep living our lives And then Hobie knocks something over. He tries to run away, but Scott pulls him under the pier as Ron goes around the other side of the pier to stop Hobie from running away. But then Hobie screams for Ron's help and Ron seems conflicted. Yeah. So then Um, they cut to one of my favorite scenes, which is the return of the dumbbell fisherman. Uh, uh, And the dumbbell fisherman says something about how these power skids are loud. But if you think they're loud, you should try being a fish. <laughs> <laughs> Which I like, yeah, that does seem rough, fisherman yeah. number two. Um, and he he's just kind of like, he's, I, I don't think he's a real actor. Like, I think they hired an ex. It doesn't feel right, this scene. Absolutely. It just feels like they found some dude on the pier who was already fishing and were like, would you like to be in Baywatch? And the, he was like, what is Baywatch? Because this is episode one. <laughs> that is a good point. Exactly. It's September 22nd, 1989. What are you doing this day? Uh, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fishing. What, what insults do you like to shout at the youngsters? I like to call them <laughs> dumbbell kids. Oh, that's a good one. Let's keep that one in. <laughs> but he says he saw the red power ski and he's like yeah i i don't really know there's probably like kids eh." and there's like a flashy one and it doesn't really help them but then he says 
they ask him, um, where did the power ski push off from? And he points in a direction, so they go towards a specific direction, um, which also doesn't end up helping them at all. Nope, not at all. They just get in a boat later. (laughs) Yeah, so we next cut to back under the pier where Scott and Ron are interrogating Hobie, mostly Scott, and then... At one point, Scott, like, turns to talk to Ron or something. I started to get a little bored of this plot line by this point. Yeah. Um, And Hobie tries to run away, and then Scott starts to go after him, but Ron tackles Scott. So Hobie starts to escape on a jet ski, and then Scott goes after him on another jet ski, and we have a little bit of a chase before we cut back to the rescue boat that now Mitch, Jill, and the cop are on. Right. The plot has to move here, so it does. Quickly. So, it has to move very quickly. Exactly. We've only got about five minutes left in the episode at this point. So we cut back and forth between Hobie and Scott a couple of times, and then they start approaching the boat, and Mitch is like, oh my god, it's Hobie. And then Hobie so gets Jill, really near the boat. Jill, with her binoculars, goes, it's Hobie. And he goes, right. what? <laughs> and he's just like, full speed ahead. And then he jumps out of the boat. Yeah. Hobie falls off the jet ski and Mitch jumps out of the boat to go save him. And this part is bizarre. So he jumps out of the boat to save Hobie. He gets Hobie back to the boat. Jill helps him up and she's like, Hobie, I'm so glad you're okay. Um, And Hobie says, Dad, I'm so sorry, but that's the guy who killed him. And Mitch is just like, I believe you. And yeah. shouts, let's get him. And I'm like, yeah. wait, what? Like, yeah, your son has been lying to you this whole episode. You just realized. And now you're like, ah, but this is probably the truth. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. So let me go chase down a teenager in a boat while this teenager is on a speedboat and then do a flying tackle off the side of the boat into the guy on the jet ski. Why didn't? Why did Scott just turn right? Yes. He could have just turned right. He can maneuver better than the boat. Just turn right and go around them. As we learned earlier, jet skis can turn on a dime. Exactly. So, like, why not put the power in that power ski into action and just take a turn? I, I don't... So... This is a key point where I should introduce my last Baywatch fact of the episode, which is yeah. apparently that David Hasselhoff set a rule for the cast, oh. which was, if you are if you pout, you're out, which is his exact <laughs> line. If, if David Hasselhoff heard us right now, he would say, we're out. Guess we'll have to keep that in mind if we ever travel back in time and go on Baywatch. Or if we just ever talk to David Hasselhoff and be like, hey, Hoff, we pouted. And I'll be like, well, you're outed. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Oh, totally. But we we start wrapping things up as the boat goes back to the shore and we get some various sepia shots of the beach for a while while Hobie and Mitch walk along the beach Um, Hobie says that he hates when Mitch doesn't talk because normally it means that Mitch is real mad, but Mitch says this time I'm just grateful. And then Mitch tells Hobie that it's okay that Hobie lied because every kid does it and tells Hobie he'll always be there for him. And well, he, he says every kid does it, but he also says something along the lines of like, 
you're not the first kid who's done this, but you might be the first kid ever who's put their life on the line for it. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Have you like, yeah. like David in the story, David and Goliath was like fucking like 13 <laughs> or something. Like there's all these Greek tragedies, which Mitch has not read because he spent his life out on the beach and not where it should be in the books. Mm-hmm. And specifically in the books about fake gods. Exactly. <laughs> um, but the, the last line of the episode is Hobie saying, don't worry, I won't ask about power skis anymore. But what about hang gliders? And I wish there was a laugh track because man, does that deserve a really cheesy laugh track? It absolutely does. It's so disappointing. It's so bad. And then we fade out on some more sepia shots of the beach as the credits roll. Well, so this is the part which was the most whack part to me. The ending, did you watch the ending credits? Uh, I watched the first like credit. So these are a series of really, really bad like screen grabs. They're all like really uh, washed out colors. They look like a glitched out session of the game Mist for PC. Um, everything oh, wow. is just either has like the tones of copper or literal feces uh, mm-hmm. combined with like that faded like uh, vaporwave blue. Uh, oh, yeah. But then they also do these like weird like. like vaporwave like brown line it just looks like somebody took a bunch of like frames of the show rubbed some feces on it and i hate that i keep on saying feces (laughs) uh on it and then like it's 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 so bad like I, i can't even describe how bad it is it's maybe the worst credit sequence i've ever seen out of any piece of art ever well now i'm wishing i'd paid more attention to it you should absolutely go back and watch it it's worth it uh it's so bad uh and um i'm i'm glad that i don't typically watch end credit sequences but uh yeah this that was that was a trash end credit sequence but thoughts on the episode overall it was considerably better than i was expecting yeah i think what helped it was mitch yeah i would agree it was it was a little bit boring at times, but Mitch was so captivating and so captivating. Yeah, he had such good charisma throughout this that was completely absent in the pilot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They definitely retooled his character uh, for this because they were focusing on Craig, who is boring. Yeah, he continues to be boring this episode and is given almost nothing to do other than act as a vessel for eddie to get his life together which i mean is good i'm I'm glad but yeah because i mean eddie interesting eddie seems like a character who has a long-term arc craig yeah. does not craig yes. is still just fucking master of disguise dana carvey put into the body of a ripped lifeguard like it it, it doesn't make a lot of sense uh but mitch like we know mitch is going to be there for like fucking ever so it's good that Mitch establishes himself as an interesting character from the get-go because then we're going to get to know him and actually care about his character in the long run because almost everybody else, I think, except for Hobie and Mitch, are are cycled through. Um, and actually, I think Officer Garner Ellerby is there for quite a while also. 
but like I, I have no clue why. But I I like Officer Ellerby in the sense that I think it's going to be interesting when they see more of him just being upset at lifeguards, but they need to like figure out why he's upset at lifeguards. Yes. Yeah. Right now he just, it feels like a weird elitist thing almost, except I don't know why. (laughs) Like I don't get what the elitism is about. Yeah. There's, there's really no context for it. Uh, There's not a lot of context for, for a lot of things. I did find myself in this episode wanting to focus on characters who weren't focused on like Shawnee. I, I kind of really like Shawnee and I like Eddie, but I want to see more of Shawnee and Eddie interact because yeah, I think Shawnee they're gets cute. One line. Right. She got like one or two lines only. And like, it's not just because Shawnee's like hot as hell, but also that's creepy because she's 20. Um, it's because like, I legitimately think her and Eddie are like cute together and I want to watch more of that stuff because I'm like a hopeless romantic. And <laughs> I also just think like in general shows like these, the B characters are usually more interesting than the A characters. Yeah, totally. No, I'm definitely curious to see where this ends up going much more so than I was after the pilot. And that's because I think also partially because Lori sucked. Yes. Lori she was, was so such bad. a bad decision. Yeah. And if they, I, 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 if they had taken the plot of this episode, put it in for like two hours, cut it, just replaced all the Lori plot and put this plot instead, but did everything else they did in the pilot. I, I think if the pilot would have been not bad, honestly, uh, you'd have to retool this because this, I mean, Scott and Ron are the most white people names, yes. and they're the most boring, bland baloney sandwich characters I can mm-hmm. think of. And it's just, they, they're not even worth being like monster of the week villains. <laughs> they're, they're just trash. Yeah. So, I mean, in that case, I would give this episode like uh, a B minus. Yeah. I think I'm right around that same spot with you. I would say C plus to B minus. Yeah. I think the pilot, I would have, given like maybe a b just because it it had more to it and like i liked learning about these characters uh but like it wasn't as good of a cohesive story i guess because Lori is again just utter trash but i'm excited to see what happens next episode i think i mean again this this apparently first season sucks but i think we're gonna build to something good yeah i feel much more confident that that's where we're headed compared to compared to last week do you feel confident that you're going to build to an experience you're gonna enjoy through doing this podcast yeah you know i think i do because there were a couple of genuinely good moments in this episode already and if it apparently gets much better from here on out, I'm in for the ride. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're already stuck with it because we agreed well, to do yeah. it. But <laughs> like, I think we're in for a ride that I, I don't know what that quality increase looks like. I, I have no memory of what Pam Anderson's acting ability is. But like, maybe we're going to get wowed by some stuff. Who knows? Could be. Could be. So on that note. Do you have any other notes about this episode? No, I think that's about it. All I want to say at this point is thanks for listening to this episode of Baywatch Rookie School. I've been Morgan Thrapp. And I've been Michael Eisen.
If you want to find us on Twitter, our show handle is at Rookie School Pod. I'm at Morgan P. Thrapp. And I am at Snotsnit, S-N-O-T-S-N-I-T. And we'll see you next week. And just remember, hips, lips, and fingertips. Ugh. <laughs>